Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So first up, we're going to have Catherine Pond, uh, and then Callie Siskel, and then lastly, Megan Fernandez. They'll they'll each come up and read a little bit of their work, um, and then after that, we'll do the signing. But uh, as I said, I'm just going to read a little bit about Megan Fernandez's book, uh, and then uh, tell you about the authors, and then I'll get out of here. Okay, so Megan Fernandez's Good Boys offers... Plural. Good Boys offers a a complex portrait of messy feminist rage, negotiations with race and travel, and existential dread in the Anthropocene. Good Boys follows a restless, nervy, cosmically abandoned speaker failing at the aspirational markers of adulthood as she flits from city to city, from enchantment to disgust. It may be on the back of the book. Always re-emerging, just barely, on the trains, bridges, and barstools of New York City. A child of the Indian Ocean diaspora, Fernandez enacts the humor and devastation of what it means to exist as a body of contradictions. Her interpretations are muddied. Her feminism is accusatory, messy. Her homelands are theoretical and rootless. The poet converses with goats and throws a fit at a tarot reading. She loves the intimacy of strangers during turbulent plane rides and has dark fantasies about the hydrogen fruit of nuclear fallout. Ultimately, these poems possess an affection for the doomed, false beloveds, the hounded earth, civilization's intent on their own ruin. Fernandez skillfully interrogates where to put our fury and more importantly, where to direct our mercy. So I'm going to begin with Catherine, since she's coming up first. Catherine Pond is a PhD candidate in literature and creative writing at USC and holds an MFA in poetry from Columbia University, where she was awarded the Academy of American Poets Prize in 2013. She is co-founder of the online literary magazine Two Peach. Her debut collection, Field Glass, won the Crab Orchard First Book Award in Poetry in 2019 and is forthcoming Uh, from Southern Illinois University Press in 2021. Callie Siskel is a Dorn Seif Doctoral Fellow in Creative Writing and Literature at USC. She is the author of Arctic Revival, selected for a Poetry Society of America chapbook fellowship. Uh, Excuse me. Um, Her poems have appeared in Plowshares, a public space, the Yale Review, and elsewhere. She's received support from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Sewanee Writers Conference, the Napa Valley Writers Conference, and the Johns Hopkins University Writing Seminars. And finally, Megan Fernandez is a writer living in New York City. She is an assistant professor of English at Lafayette College and teaches courses on poetry, creative nonfiction, and critical theory. Her work has been published or is forthcoming from The New Yorker, or in The New Yorker, Tin House, Plowshares, Denver Quarterly, Chicago Review, Boston Review, Guernica, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and many others. I, that, was a, that was a shortened list. Um, okay. She is the author of The Kingdom and After. Her second book of poetry, Good Boys, was a finalist for the Kundiman Book Prize the Saturn, and the Saturnalia Book Prize. 
I'm really excited, we're all very excited to have these uh, incredible authors with us today. Please join me in welcoming Megan Fernandez, Catherine Pond, and Kelly Siskel. But first, Catherine Pond. Okay. Hi guys. Um, if you get to the tarot poem, I'm Catherine the Blonde in the book. <laughs> Good boys. Um, I'm so excited to be here to support Megan. Um, I met Megan when I was 18. She actually invited me to give one of the first readings I ever gave um, in Cambridge a long time ago. Um, so this is a really exciting moment, and obviously by the book, that's what we're here to do. Um, so I'll read three poems from my forthcoming manuscript, which is, comes out about a year from now. Um, and they're all sort of speaking to the same friend character. So the first one is called Winter Sister. The day your brother dies, I undress, bury the clothes I'm wearing in the trash, a long sleeve striped shirt and a pair of jeans. It's October. I don't know how you feel, what you throw out. The lake falls back into itself like a first draft. You start sleeping on the floor again. When I spend the night, I join you, the two of us cocooned in comforters. All night, I listen for your breath from beneath the gray-blue chrysalis. At home, my mom starts reading to me in the evening again. She has a clear voice like water. I'm getting too old for it, but each night, she saves a space for me in bed beside her. Time behaves strangely, moving forward and away. Magnolias bloom like ink blots in the yard. Drought turns the willow yellow in the wind. Somewhere what you love is still alive, turning cartwheels in a gentle snow, is the sort of lie I write years later, wishing I could make it true for you. Winter sister, 17 years of sleeping on floors. We live so far apart, but I still wake, searching for your shape in the dark. You still call me in your quiet voice, waiting and waiting for what won't come home. University of Iowa Museum of Natural History. Under a replica of a mammoth sloth, you place my hand on your stomach and I feel the baby kick. I look at a diorama of the Canadian prairie Imagine a tornado sweeping across that cardboard empire, shaking the figurines loose from their toothpick fence. We don't speak. The museum of tomorrow is small, and we are scared of the surgical knife that will slice through your abdomen. To exit, we walk backwards through the Devonian era, where the world is mostly water, and you get tired quickly. Here, the fish are still just forming the first forests taking shape. Um, this poem borrows its title from a Bright Eyes song. It's called Blue Angels Air Show. Yeah, they're having a little comeback. Okay. <laughs> Just yesterday, the sky was blue and blank. Now it's filled with sound, with white streaks. Sound splits the day into parts, rattling the ground. Spectators crowd the streets. I imagine they are the same people who like roller coasters, who invite the excitement of an earthquake. How they gasp happily 
watching the trick planes rise and fall above them, feeling the cold calm of being still on earth while the wings switch blade across the sky. Such clean coordinates. Towards sunset, the wings vanish like ripples in water, and all those years spent trying to make you laugh unravel like exhaust, leaving behind nothing but sky and collapsible stars, visible to us only as a flat field. You need a telescope to tell the difference in time. Now you sleep in my arms like a sailboat tucked in its slip. Though somewhere I can't see, you are still lowering yourself down in a windy dark, watching the world through a small windshield speckled with frost, snow blowing over Lake Superior in the space between a long silence and a burst of sound. I want to love you in no particular order. It's okay to love what's still alive. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Callie. I've only known Megan since the summer of 2019, but it was a great four weeks, three weeks, and I'm so happy to celebrate her, her book. Um, I'm going to also read three poems, and I'm so happy to be at USC with Catherine, if you caught that repetition in the bios. Um, and one of the, po the last poem I'm going to read, I wrote in a workshop that we are currently in together called Seance Poetics, if you're curious. Um, so this first poem is called Messenger. Picture a symbol of what you want to remember, an anchor for the sea, a cuirass for a battle scene. I see my mother's knife, the one she used to open her mail, its dull blade, the sheer force of it splitting the seal, the antiquated sheath that held its tongue. It was her tongue that cut my childhood in half into father, no father. Her mouth that had to say exactly what I cannot remember, but if I could only speak, might somehow undivide me. This poem is called Vanitas, which is a genre of the still life, which um, symbolizes death. Um, but the poem also, uh, appeal, the title rather, appealed to me because it also contains the word vanity, which is something that I'm writing about in a, in a collection, a forming collection of poems that these three poems would ideally appear in. Vanitas. When my therapist says, grief ate my adolescence and years and years after, and I ask her, is it finished? And she says, is it? I picture Cezanne's still life with skull, the mandible concealed by linen, four pears, two peaches, and a lemon, wanting this time to take away the cloth to see not what's gold, tart, sweet, not the decorative fern, not the worn wood table, not the ochre wall, not that pear pitched like so unless it falls and then splits softly on the floor, the floor, which is also hidden, a blue corner, as if the table were sinking under a growing need to see instead the mouth, grief's emissary, some revelatory opening that feasts on time and leaves behind a still life 
this placid mute drawn. And my last poem is called Ab Initio, which will be explained in the, in the poem. Um, <clears throat> Ab Initio. In a past life, I was not defined by his death. I was not rerouted like a plane through Charlotte. I was a part of a nuclear family, the phrasing of which appears first in 1924 as the nuclear family complex. I did not have a complex. I smiled for the camera. Love accumulated like debt, mindless habit forming. Similes were balanced equations. I had my father's face, not you have your father's face. In a past life, I am on the basketball court behind our apartment when I hear his footsteps on the asphalt. Does it count as a past life if it happened? In a past life is not supposed to mean your life before tragedy, but an existence altogether unrecognizable, which is maybe the same thing, my having been a fir tree. In a past life, the stanza above is nonsensical. In a past life, as a fir tree, my identity was also pine. In a past life that broke off from this one, as I watched a woman walk off of a plane before the doors were armed and I almost followed her. I am a lawyer, and my favorite phrase is ab initio, from the beginning. And my second is animus revertendi, intention to return. In a past life as that woman, as someone who refused to comply, as a passenger without baggage, without a story she answers to exclusively, no one would know me. In a past life, the allure is not who we were, but who we are not. Thank you. Give it up for Megan Fernandez. I'm going to um, stand up because um, I didn't wear the right outfit for sitting down. So, Is that okay? No. This is all recorded, so I keep thinking about that. I'm like, what do I want to say? Um, thank you to Callie and Catherine um, for reading with me. Uh, it, Callie is right. I've only known her for half a year, but every time I saw her during those rather stressful three weeks in Tennessee, of all places, I immediately felt my blood pressure come down. And I think Callie has that kind of effect on people, which is lovely. Catherine, on the other hand, is more like me, a little bit of a chaos muppet, um, and a partner in adrenaline. And uh, sure, I've known Catherine since she was 18. And um, uh, she really is, if, whenever somebody asks me who is like your favorite writer um, that's, that's uh, writing today, that's like around our age, I always say Catherine. And I'm so looking forward to that book coming out. So. Um, and also her parents are here, so tell them that she's very employable after this PhD. Uh, that's an <laughs> Every parent wants to know that. Um, okay, so I'm going to start with a poem called Running in the Suburbs. It's the only poem in the book I read to my mom, who hopefully will not read this book. Um, and it's a little bit about this phenomena that's been happening to me. A lot of my friends have kids now, and whenever I'm with them, like, even in New York, people are always mistaking me for the nanny. Um, and I was with my godchild uh, a few months ago, and um, it happens again, and so I always think about this poem. Running in the Suburbs. 
Running in the suburbs by the truck with the Trump bumper sticker, and since you do a loop around these shaded streets, you always smile at everyone. You don't look like a threat, but maybe someone's nanny here. Maybe someone's maid. What is the maid doing running in circles around the block, they are thinking? What is the maid trying to stay fit for? Everything, even your smile, becomes a little more criminal. You want to utter things that make you ashamed. You want to recite them Dickinson and Poe, challenge their knowledge of Barolo wines. You are such an insecure petite bourgeois and how quickly you became one from being broke when cheddar was a luxury, stuck in tens of thousands of student debt to now the professor who runs while in residence at a writer's colony. You're still in debt, kid. You're still brown. They still think you're the nanny or maid. Your 20-year-old self is still laughing at you. The guesswork keeps building even when there is sun, a few deer making eye contact, the brilliant blue sky, Dinah Washington crying rivers in your headphones. You tell your mom about running in the suburb and she is annoyed. Not everything is about race, Megan. She has shit to do today. Elder care, a doctor's visit. She's got no time for my hypotheses. I know, I say. Defensive, ashamed. I ask her how she is finally, but I hear a voice reversing us in my head. It says, not everything is about race, mama. Not everything is about race. I read her that, and she was like, I just think you're really misrepresenting how much you're running. <laughs> I was like, that tracks. That tracks, mom. <laughs> Patricia. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to... I'm going to uh, read four more poems. I love poetry, and even I need to know when it's over. So I'm like, okay, let's do the countdown. Um, so I'm going to read four more poems. This is called nukemap.com. And um, this is a poem uh, about nuclear anxiety. And when um, the rhetoric around uh, nuclear war was sort of escalating, not like now when everything's fine, um, uh, I was going on this website called nukemap.com in which there was an arsenal of the world's nuclear weapons, and they all have names, which I didn't know. And they all have boy names. So, um, it is 2.37 a.m. and I make myself eat an apple while on the laptop Alec Baldwin is hosting Match Game, an experiment in the ageless art of game show hosting, like orange light diving back into the 70s. In an open tab, I am dropping nukes on New York City to watch the airburst swell into a new species of hydrogen fruit. I do this over and over until each bomb becomes a sun that you detonate virtually into the night. Davy Crockett and Little Boy, Batman and Ivy Mike, Gadget, Castle Bravo, and Tsar Bomba. All of the bombs are named for boys with fathers from Pakistan and Russia, sly America, or the green seawaters of a Korean dream. Some of the really bad nukes only have numbers and are unnameable, like B-83, because you can't name something that can kill 1.8 million people, even if you are its mother. You detonate the bomb and listen to Gravity Rides Everything. You detonate the bomb and still think the 90s will save you. You tell your roommate that if the bomb goes off above 39th, you might both survive. New York City is the default target on nukemap.com. This is so unquestioned that you clutch your O'Hara and handwrite David Trinidad a letter in Chicago to tell him about nuke anxiety. He doesn't even know you well, but he was nice once in the lobby of the Marlton on 8th Street when you recited Creeley and talked for three hours, and lately you only want to be around people over 60. You still expect them to save you. You still believe in elders. You can get the second season of Match Game on abc.com for free. You can watch all your favorite comedians from 1992 come to 
life resurrected like clay prophets, saying you can live in the television where nothing will incinerate you. You are back in Seinfeld's apartment, and all that matters is that Jerry doesn't want to date someone with man hands. All our futures are like time beating backwards into sitcoms with the laugh tracks of the dead, and the apple in your mouth is now an organism you slew in your throat, and each of your sons, Davy and Mike, and Bravo and Fat Man, are standing on top of a heap of nuclear soil that was once a very specific girl. Let's call her Anna, and they are asking you to forgive them like any mother would. They're all bummers. <laughs> um, three more. Can you feel it in the air? Um, okay, so uh, this is a poem called um, Conversion, and my friend, who's also a great poet named Sam Sachs, him and I were at a bar one night, and I, he's like, what's your book called? I'm like, it's called Good Boys. And he's like, oh, you mean like a dog? I was like, what? And he's like, like a dog, like, you know, a good boy. And I was like, no, not like a dog. So this is a little poem for Sam, Conversion. Sam says, you can't have a book, you can't name your book Good Boys without a dog. But Sam doesn't know that I am the dog. I am the ultimate mutt, and I am telling him this story at a bar called College Hill Tavern, which looks like a front for some operation, where all the bar stools appear as if they were staged in under 10 minutes, and the girl with the fake lashes knows I like a double gin. And I'm telling Sam that I was a dog who was converted when I was 17, and my mother found an essay about how I was in love with a girl, and there was a Portishead reference in case you need me to date it. And this was way before the liberation of the young and the white twins on YouTube who come out to their dad, and everybody cries and transforms. When I see those kids, all I think is they never had parents who were immigrants and who sent you to a lady and told you you had to solve it all in one session because this therapy was expensive. It wasn't traumatic. It was funny. And I remember the couch. There were multiple couches, and I had to choose a spot, and I sat on the couch farthest from her, and this wasn't the first nice lady who looked at me like I was a dog. And Sam, when I said it was called good boys, what I meant was that I was a good boy and loved good boys and good men and still love them. But you see, I was 17 and alone, and nobody gave me anything except one book by Dickinson, and she was so neat, so precise, so human, and I wasn't. I just wasn't. I was just a dog. I wasn't even that good. Let's see if there's a funny one. <laughs> um, I'm not going to read our tarot one, even though that is the funniest one in the book. Um, Catherine and I got our tarot cards read, and hers was great. And mine was like just awful and we were in Connecticut and like on a farm or something and I was like there was go these goats on the farm and I was just like weeping to these goats about this tarot card reading. It was so embarrassing. That's why you don't leave the city. Um, okay. So two more poems. This one's called Why We Drink. It's on my tenure file. <laughs> I assume the promotion crew at the college where I teach is really thrilled about this one. Um, and it's about a friend, Malik, who um, is, uh, has been in recovery. So why we drink. I tell Malik I'm going to stop. I tell him I do it because I'm sad and because they ate. someone was mean to me at a lecture after five men spoke during the Q&A, so I said something finally about energy and petrocultures and didn't the infrastructure of the moon landing look just like the oil fields of Alberta? And some older Italian men said no, said I was projecting, as if projection were not interpretation, but it was in front of a lot of people. And what was the point of all my degrees and giving up a decade of my life to school if I could be so easily humiliated? And maybe I shouldn't have worn jeans shredded at my thighs or that navy sweater sleeve leaves blooming with moth holes, but if these are our left institutions, if these are the men on our side, I said, then of course I am going to drink. 
Malik tells me you can't quit before 35 because you're not going to stay quit. And something about me trusts him because he was at the ear and back when it was the ear and back in the old New York, and he tells me I'm the new New York, and I don't even know how to tell him that I'm not even that. I say humiliation is like the nausea of childhood with those delayed epiphanies. I hate the violence of insight. The lesson is always how one is ugly or dishonest, the shortcomings that could build a civilization and then did. Malik is not even much older, 40-something, but there have been many Maliks, and therefore he claims ancientness. He says it's all real, my parents and those men, and yes, even the feeble species. He keeps a notebook and writes down all the great Irish bits spiraling out of Helen's mouth at dinner. He sits cross-legged on a pillow, cradles lemons and snacks on pickle, waxes poetic while he assesses the spice level of a green Peruvian sauce I make, which he ranks only a three for spice, but insists it is a ten in taste because he knows I am fragile. He does impressions of nutritionists and people who get jazzed about gym memberships. But I know, though we are laughing, that he is really sad, sad that this is the theater of his multitasking, that the corruptions are multiplying faster than our jokes. We've become creatures who can slip through dimensions, our times thick with simultaneity, so ready we are to be brutalized many times a day. Malik says maybe it's time to leave New York. He can tell we're all getting tilted there, and by that he means becoming products, paralyzed by false moonlight in the streets. I tell Malik I drink because I am tired, and because they hate us anyway, and we are outside while others smoke at the opening of the red wheelbarrow in Paris, and I'm wearing a polka dot dress, and I forgot to put on a bra this morning, and it is freezing, and I see myself, the mess of my complaints and temperatures, the way I am not making any sense these days. He says yes and yes and yes. He keeps saying it's all okay, all real, tells me to turn my insights into continents, into paintings, get sloppy, delicate, be a feral amateur. When I get back to New York, he's the only one I still talk to on the regular. He says, listen to this and read this, and his brain is so addicted to joy, and we both get nominated for a prize in the same week, and it works. It really does work, the way his spirit skims octaves across the ocean into my heart, into this poem, the way he said my Jesus here now that I'm 33 is going to reveal something about me, which it just did, and do you know this time the revelation didn't hurt so much, which is Malik, what Malik might call aging, a process not nearly as dire as they want you to believe. We're going to a bar after this also, so. Um, okay, last poem uh, is called Amsterdam. It's about Beirut. No, I'm just kidding. It's about Amsterdam. Um, and yeah, thank you guys so much for coming out. Sometimes the mythologies of a city are true. Like when I see a blonde man bob for red apples selling records side by side with a black cat wound in a cushion deep in dream. Josh says he doesn't want to go see Anne Frank, that that kind of tourism depresses him, the one where the demonstration of grief is like a voyeuristic tug at suffering that is not yours to possess. How do you eat a meal after that? He seems sad today. How do you stay alive? When he was young, he visited Auschwitz and told me not to go because it had a gift shop and that made him angry and nobody knows how to grieve in public, how to make public space for loss unless you can make money off of it. But really, there's something else to his anger. The child abandoned, the residue of a young girl's life turned into a petting zoo. This he cannot take. I have become like my mother where I don't need sleep in a new city anymore. Immune to time shifts, I just wander and buy fruit and almonds and a good loaf of bread and today some fresh juice skipping museums. Though I want to go back and see Anne Frank's house this time because this time I am a woman and last time I was a girl and when you are a girl all you see is another girl and when you are a woman all you see is history careening towards a girl whom you cannot protect. I'm thinking of Harlem and Amsterdam. Sometimes I go there to hide. I go there to eat at a bistro owned by a lady named Faye. 
In Harlem, there is Faye, and she's older with light eyes, and her whole family owns this place, and her grandson works behind the bar, and he's just 17 and a soccer player, and this week got into Dartmouth, and I ask if she thinks he'll be happy being a black kid at Dartmouth, but Faye is Queen Faye and knows better than to answer questions about race at dinner time, especially in front of all these nice people. In Amsterdam, the cold sunlight of April grows the dandelions in the gutter, and when you get to 263 to see Anne Frank's house only from the outside, the building is not as tall as you remember, and you wonder what the ceilings were like for a young girl, and you imagine her face, I imagine her face and think maybe something bad happened to Josh when he was a kid, and you see her face in the window, her face lit up in story, her face in love and in fear, and you are in Amsterdam when the American president bombs Syria. You say American president as if you are not an American, and as if he is not your president. You promised that he would not make his way into any poem, but here he is bombing Syria, and here he is in your poem, and here is her face spreading all over Europe, and here is your face, and spreading all over Europe, and here is your face, your face, your face. Thank you so much, and thank you also to... Thank you also to Callie and Catherine, so can we clap for them? Okay. Yeah. And thank you to Kaveh and to Skylight Books for having us. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.